Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. With guest co-host, Sedwick. <gasps> Is that a Mackie? Well, I went ahead and decided to answer it because I'm out walking right now. Okay. <laughs> Unless I'm doing the intro, I was going to hang up again and join you when I got back to the house. No, you're not doing the intro. Our guest actually requested to do the intro, so I'm a little scared. Oh, that's okay. Ooh. Maybe I should hang on the call just to hear that. <laughs> no. Also, we're only actually missing Phil. Hey, Jason. Hello. I'll see if I can make a fast statement back to the house then. Alrighty. Uh, how do I hang up on the dang phone? <laughs> Thanks for the bumper to the episode, Maggie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do I hang up on you assholes? <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you guys. This is episode 311 of Polycast, your source for independent civilizing. Leaving this auditory effort, just smile, nod, and pretend like you know what he means. It's Dan Q. Not just sunglasses at night, but also sunglasses at day. He made this bed, and now he's going to lie in it. He's the me and team. My military is always open for suggestions. Yes, and yes, it's still awesome. So don't let her catch you looking at her land. She's Makalua. Oh, hi. He ignored the quest to add cheese to his trade network and lost his suzerain status with Green Bay. It's Mega Bears fan. Oh, boy. Just rub (laughs) it in. Why don't you? And finally, his era score was one point short, so he had to enter the Renaissance as a dark age. It's me, Sedwick. I'm glad one of us rehearsed something. What are you talking about? I always rehearse something without exception. It might not be the thing you guys wanted, but it's something. After Rise and Fall's suggestion series posted by A Clue Without, Rise and Fall, which is, of course, the first expansion pack for Civilization VI, will go a long way to making Civ VI feel more quote-unquote complete, but there are a few areas where I think Civ needs to be filled in more. Ahead of the next expansion, I thought I'd share some of these thoughts. So the series is five, and the first one is uh, Resources and Energy where he argues that a big part of human history is the history of energy production. Moving from people power to animal power to chemical and even nuclear power has been a huge source of advancement globally. Civ 6 doesn't really represent this. And so now he's got a series of suggestions. His too-long-didn't-read summary is that having two copies of horse or oil should give additional production to industrial zones. Power plants should be a separate district that need coal or nuclear power. But first off, then, horses and oil. After you research machinery, all industrial zones with a workshop and all harbors with a shipyard receive an additional plus one adjacency if your empire has access to at least two horses. After you research combustion, the harness bonus obsoletes, and instead industrial zones with a factory and harbors with a seaport get plus X production adjacency if your empire has at least two oil. After plastics, commercial hubs give an additional plus two gold. My initial reaction to this is certainly after two of your particular strategic resource, you definitely don't need any more in terms of unit production. Heck, well, I used to only need one, although now with a uh, particular governor promotion, Magnus, where you place them in that city and they can construct units that would otherwise require a strategic resource, meaning you need zero. I mean, it's nice that we're starting to think about more reasons for copies of 
multiple sources of oil, which to me goes towards the let's actually continue to expand beyond the mid-game instead of leaving a lot of really good land with resources there because we don't need them anymore. I know it's not the only reason that we're doing this, but that's my first reaction to this. So I, I like this horses and oil suggestion. They don't mix in reality, but they kind of mix well here. Haha. <laughs> Well, horses were such an essential part of civilization, at least until the last hundred years or so. It's kind of an interesting twist to get make them more relevant. But they were also prevalent in the old world anyway, or the uh, Eastern Hemisphere. They were so prevalent. And even iron was a pretty common resource. It's stretching the bounds a little bit of plausibility to make either of these consistently unavailable. Like, you really have to work to attain them compared to uh, some of the other resources, which are a bit more rare. And from a gameplay perspective, it's understandable, but... Yeah, but again, that's why it's a bonus and not necessarily a necessity. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, I wouldn't necessarily mind seeing more of these resources if you moved into this model, because that would be more historically plausible, and more of the resources would have meaning. So you would still have incentive to pursue more of them or trade for more of them than you would now, where after two, it's pointless completely. I kind of feel like I would just prefer having a system more like what we had with the strategic resource supply in Civ Five, where you actually have a number of resources and you actually like spend them on things in your empire. So a finite count. Yeah, like I think I'd rather see a, a system where almost kind of like how you used to assign specialists to buildings, you could actually like assign resources to buildings and they would come out of your supply. So you'd actually have to like choose whether you wanted to spend your resources domestically in your cities to like improve yields and economic bonuses or spend them on building or maintaining military units. Would you be to the point of suggesting, let's say embedded in this argument, you attach uh, horse resources to an industrial zone. So does that mean only that industrial zone within that city would be able to construct horse units? Well, not necessarily be able to construct horse units, but you'd be able to assign the horses to that industrial zone to be used as like a pack animal or whatever. So it would give us like a production bonus or something, but it would only be to that building. Or maybe you assign the horse into a coliseum, right? And you're using them to have horse races and that provides an additional amenity, you know, like different uses within the city that give you different benefits so that you're actually using these resources in your cities as opposed to them just being a means for building military units. Would you envision this being movable, as in, after a certain amount of time, oh, I want to swap that into another industrial zone? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine in Civ Six because the UI is so different, but if you go back to imagining like how Civ Five's city UI worked, each building had the little slots for the specialist next to it. Oh, yes. And you just clicked on them, you put a specialist in that spot and whatever, and it generated the great people points. I'm thinking of a UI kind of similar to that, where instead of just the specialist slots, there's also slots for resources. And you drag your resources from the supply into there, and then it provides some bonus for whichever building you're assigning it to. Like I said, obviously that doesn't work for Civ Six because the UI is totally different, so we'd have to think of a totally different way of doing that. But I'm just saying that that's the kind of system that I feel like I would prefer, where you actually are using these resources rather than just having them providing you with a bonus, if that makes sense. I wouldn't be opposed to any suggestion that <laughs> involves a, a complete overhaul of Civ 6's UI. Civ 6's UI is a barrier to gameplay in general, and it sucks. So it, anything that could work as a mechanic that wouldn't work as the UI, scrap, scrap the UI. The UI is trash. And so we could do this very easily using Civ 5 or even Civ 4's setup to allocate resources. 
And you would need to, because as you scale up to 15 or 20 cities and you're managing resource allocations into the cities, you would almost need to have the ability to look at the the list of cities again and be able to manage things from there or click on one city there and allocate things to it based on what the information. But that's not an insurmountable task from a UI perspective. Not only has an earlier ship iteration done something very much like that, but other games have done that routinely over the last 10, 20 years. They could be done. With regard to the actual post, I I like the idea in general of making resources, strategic resources in particular, more useful from an economic and empire development standpoint, as opposed to them just being for military units. I think I still agree that this idea doesn't really give you that much incentive to acquire more than two copies of any particular resource. And I think that's something that I would like for Civ Six to resolve because I think you should be fighting over the remaining resources in the mid to late game. And I think that's one of the reasons in Civ 6 in particular why the mid to late game can get very dull and stagnant, because unlike Civ 5, you have no reason at all to go and acquire more copies of any particular resource. So there's no reason to fight over the land that has it. So you just kind of build your three, four, five, whatever cities, and it's very easy to just fall into turtle mode. You always can build more cities, and it's always better to build more cities, but the game isn't putting very much pressure on you to do that. And I think needing more of these resources domestically would be a good way to pressure players into needing to expand to more cities rather than just being like, all right, I've got my five. I'm just going to hit next turn until something happens. I don't think it'll happen that way, just the way the game is tuned. Because even right now, if somebody's really trying to win and the other person is really trying to win, it will turn into military conflict. And the person with more tiles slash hexes is going to have more output and will eventually overtake and be capable of destroying the smaller ship. In which case, the 15 city empire will trivially destroy the five city empire. If they're at equal levels of ability, of course. Well, that's what pillaging is for. Yeah, well, that's a big advantage to the uh, 15-city nation, too. Every hex pillaged is a much smaller proportion of the larger nation's empire. Resource allocation would be interesting, though, because it'd be a way to shift production or shift yields between cities. And you could definitely do a hybrid of that, where things along major trade would be more attractive, whereas things that are resource-rich might not necessarily be there. And then you would have some planning based on how expensive it is to... I would think you would have to impose a cost to move some of these resources between cities. And that would make it pretty challenging to determine where you want your stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, to move it from one city to another, like instantaneously, no. No, there's a time delay. There's a gold cost. There's some kind of value cost if you want to... Move it. Rather than that, I would to abstract it as either you lose some of the yield efficiency or, like you say, there's a gold cost associated with it, one or the other. Because then you're still dependent on the quality of the map tiles. But resources gain a little bit of a lift in terms of priority, even beyond what they are now. And if you want to stand up a new city quickly, you can. But depending on where it is, that's going to be more or less viable as a result of this type of mechanic. And then traders could reduce some of that transportation cost. Yeah, or, you could yeah, make roads, having influence a it, rivers. 
yeah. influence it, coastal influence it, all these things could allow for somewhat procedurally generated uh, trade paths. But going back to that point about how games just evolve into military and then having you know more territory is better than having less territory. If these resources are actually being used by your city to provide benefits in your cities, then that does open up the possibility that someone might expand to more cities but did not get the resources someone with a smaller empire that has lots of resources is actually in a much better position to beat that larger player and that might completely change the balance or dynamic of those sorts of games where yeah, it's not about be just... uncommon though because probably like the larger the empire the more you're statist- statistically likely to be able to pick these up so unless somebody's just like not prioritizing resources they're probably not going to get a bigger empire by any margin and yeah. be and, and significantly behind in resources. But it at least does introduce the potential possibility that unwise expansion, right, is not as rewarding as more effective expansion. Yeah. And it's going to make specific spots a lot more contested, too. And right. it's going to make identifying good spots require more thought than at present. Because right now, the way you're gated on fresh water and housing, really, that... that <laughs> That's a dominant constraint. I could see with this suggestion here as well, let's say you've got two sources of horses, and early on you could have the decision, well, you know what, I could take this one horse and I could construct an encampment to be able to construct mounted units, and then I could take this other horse and place it within the industrial zone of this city for that production bonus, or I could decide, nope, it's not worth having that production bonus, I would rather not spend the turns constructing the encampment. I'd rather have that second horse ready to go in order to construct those mounted units right now or to be able to make that decision later. So you guys are getting a little more into the kind of middle to later considerations depending upon the resources, which is great because we want more meaningful choices. But I'm also thinking early on that kind of, hmm, why would I necessarily want more than two copies of this resource right now? This would give you an incentive to do that, especially in the case of horses, because you can see that right from the beginning of the map. That would be, okay, that would be very specific settling for, whereas oil in a lot of cases, it's like, well, gosh, I hope I have oil at a certain point, but unless I get that early great scientist, and even then it's not super, super early relative to our general expansion right now, let's hope that I have it. But yeah, if you don't, then that gives you another reason to go and get those additional copies, even if you do have them in your empire, and give everybody, or at least most other civs, a chance to reward to say, you know, you didn't do very well in this first phase of expansion, but now you can do a little better in the second phase, and maybe not just expand for expanding sake, but your territory can actually be worth something more than the fact that you have quantity, you have a quality, and you have a strategic advantage now that maybe somebody else doesn't have. Although I do think the after plastics commercial hubs give an additional plus two. This is just kind of thrown at the end of this suggestion, and really after plastics, that's a major drop in the bucket. I could see after maybe an earlier tech commercial hubs give an additional something gold, but then at the same time, when having an envoy in a city state <laughs> commercial one is still worth plus four, it doesn't seem like a lot. I'm not really certain that is worth considering giving additional gold to when we've already got the adjacency bonus consideration in there, but everything else sounds starting to flesh out very well. Next, coal, nuclear, and renewables. Three new districts, coal power plant, modern era, nuclear power plant, atomic era, wind turbine, information era. Each district provides production bonus to all of your cities within X tile range, not stackable. Each power plant district would also provide a percentage production bonus to the city they are based in. 
Nuclear provide the biggest, win the smallest. Coal and nuclear plants that only provide bonuses when you had at least two copies of coal or nuclear in your empire, respectively. Wind turbines have no resource requirements. You can only build one of these districts in any city, and each is mutually exclusive of each other. Wind turbines must be built on the coast. Each district would reduce appeal if placed within two tiles of a city center or one tile for wind turbines. You would also reduce that city's amenities by 1%. Unfortunately, I start to lose interest in this very quickly simply because, oh... We need to get ourselves to the modern era. Not suggesting necessarily that it would be any earlier in the game, but it seems like in order for that to be a worthwhile investment to put into the game, we need to do some other things as well in the middle to late game to have this be anything kind of meaningful. Because after all, this giving you a production bonus to the city they are based in, so this is your new industrial zone. I've already got industrial zones. I've already built them up. Why would I invest in this when this is another district cost? on top of it as well. Yeah, I think I'd rather just see these be mutually exclusive buildings within the district. And they could even throw the uh, tech hub maybe in as a another exclusive building. So you've got the option between building one type of power plant or the other or a tech hub, kind of like you have the stable versus barracks option in the encampment, or you have the uh, archaeological museum versus the uh, art. I think I'd rather see it just work that way. So it's not a whole new district. Or one district for power production, and then you choose what goes in it, as opposed to one district for each of these choices. Yeah, that, that worked too. But again, like I said, I think it could fit just fine in the industrial hub and just be different buildings, right? And each building is exclusive within any particular industrial hub. I think that would be fine. Well, you can actually even argue you need to place that before the factory, but well, let's just say for the, for the simplicity, you've got a factory and then you can go ahead and you can construct one of these power plants. And yes, and only one within an industrial zone. We don't need any stacking. And then that just kind of fills out the industrial zone more. In terms of what those power plants would give you, at the time they appear in the game, I mean, he does say like a percentage-based production bonus. I think that would be reasonable given when it comes in the game, you would want the power plant to be a reasonable production cost so that... It's not give myself this incredible benefit, this great high percentage because it's late in the game, yet it takes almost nothing to build. You want a return on investment, but you also don't want it to be super cheap and then just be super duper in terms of the output. But I think that's easy enough to balance. And if there's going to be different exclusive buildings, I'd like to see each of them have at least a slightly different function. I think the idea here is kind of that you've got one for each era and that you're supposed to transition from one to the other. But I think I'd like to see them do different things. For example, maybe the uh, wind turbines or whatever like gives you a bonus based on how many hills are adjacent to the district. And then you, maybe you can have like a solar plant that gives you a bonus for each desert that's adjacent to the district. So there's a little bit more of like a specialization feel where one doesn't feel like it's just an upgrade over the other. And there might actually still be reasons to build the other plants even after you've unlocked the newer ones. You know, so maybe coal gives you a large adjacency bonus if you've got mines or uh, a source of coal or something. And then the nuclear would give you a large bonus for having a source of, you know, uranium. Just so that each one feels a little bit different and has more of like a niche. Because I don't see anything like that in this proposal. It seems like they all basically just do the same thing. And it's just, oh, now I'm in the atomic era. I'm going to build nuclear plants instead of coal plants. Yeah, we don't need a district like the aqueduct, where it's just, hey, you construct the aqueduct, and yeah, so that's it. Right. Which is another one of the reasons why I don't want it to be its own district. Because it's taking up a district slot on top of it, and it's like, mm, but there's nothing more to do. Unless, yes, you had like a power plant district, but then, oh yeah, let's have a coal power plant, and then a nuclear power plant, and a wind turbine. No, no, no. 
specialize it, have it so that it's one type, and you could make that specific rather than, you know, like a factory is a factory is a factory as a final tier, depending upon which type you construct. And towards what you were saying, Jason, maybe it's actually, no, you can't construct a wind turbine here because you have absolutely no hills. I don't know why you settled the city here, but you have absolutely no hills. There's no wind turbine. Oh, right. And then, okay, you've got one hill. Okay, that's the minimum requirement. You've got two hills. Then there's a production bonus, maybe up to like two or three more hills. You get a little bit more of a production bonus, too, because then the possibility could be the wind turbine and the coal power plant. You could say, well, it needs to be connected to the trade network. It needs to have access to the coal, even if the coal isn't within the hex itself. And whereas a nuclear power plant, you could just say, oh, doesn't matter. You can place that absolutely anywhere you want, for example, within an industrial zone. Speaking of industrial zones, industrial zones would no longer have the power plant building, of course, based on the most previous suggestion. Instead, the Tier 3 building would be a tech hub. It would give an additional production to that city, increase the percentage production for certain projects run in that city, and provide an adjacency bonus to any adjacent campus, harbor, or commercial hub. The tech hub, like an information tech hub, that's not necessarily all the technology is, but I just kind of see that as not applicable because we've kind of, I think, agreed upon here that no, let's not move the power plant building out of the industrial zone, and there's no reason to have the tech hub there at all. So I think that just becomes moot now. Well, again, the tech hub could just be exclusive with the power plants where it just has some different function. So maybe you don't need a power plant in every city, right? So there'd be some cities that you would just save for having a tech hub and it would just do something different. Yeah. It'd have this effect, right? But it would be different than the power plant. Let's say you wanted a coal power plant in all of your cities and you have five cities. I don't know why. The game could say, okay, well, do you have uh, five sources of coal? And if so, do you really want to use all of your sources of coal for that? Yeah, it's an option. It would be another reason to expand to get more of these copies of resources. Because yes, we know we you can trade strategic resources to the AI. However, <laughs> some of these strategic resources, you probably don't want to give them a copy of it if they don't already have it, or you don't want to give them an additional copy. And even if they are, you know, what you're willing to give me for it is mm, not worth what you're probably going to be able to do with it. Plus the whole, oh, yes. Please, I will sell you some coal. Oh, I just declared war on you. Guess what you can't do anymore? One other issue that I see with this proposal, and I don't think the poster ever addresses it, is I don't think you can ever tear down a building in Civ Six. Like, even if it gets pillaged, you can't replace it with a different building. You can only repair the building that's already there. So if you're talking about transitioning from one power source to another, would this user be proposing that I could actually tear down my old coal power plants and replace them with nuclear power plants? Or once I build it, it's just there forever and there's nothing that I can do to change where my power is coming from? I don't know. There's that possibilities. There's the, oh, you can already upgrade units. Maybe you could... Upgrade a building, or maybe upgrade isn't the right word. That's applying a little bit of an editorialization there, Dan. How dare you suggest that a wind turbine is better than a nuclear power plant? Okay, transition. Convert. But that's kind of the implication of this post, right? Because it's talking about them being in specific eras. So they do look like, in this post, they are just an upgrade of one to the other. Except, unlike a unit, there's no spend gold to upgrade your power plant. But if you do have the option to change one building to a different building, then other things you could do is instead of the tech hub being a replacement for a power hub, the tech hub could maybe be an alternate to the factory. So, you know, you're late in the game. You don't really need all that production anymore. Maybe what you just want is research to power through the tech tree and get a science victory or whatever. So you tear down your old factory and you put up a tech hub, and that's now generating research or something instead of production. 
at that point, if the tech hub is helping you with your research, if we're going to have a research base, then maybe we want to get into, this is even a separate conversation of, hey, let's have tier four buildings. Let's have the tech hub put in your campus because you want to be able to push out your science a little bit more, yet you'd also want it to be early enough in the game for it to have any meaningful impact at all. Either, oh, I'm already going to finish the tech tree, or I don't need to get any more technology to do what it is that I'm going to do. I'm going to win culture. I'm going to win domination. I'm going to win space race already. Right. And if you're going to go with an approach like that, where you can start tearing down buildings and put in new buildings that fill different niches, I'd like to see those applied to other districts and other buildings as well, not just the industrial zone and the power plants. In part two of the series, Envoys and Diplomacy. The Envoy system seems a little undercooked, quote unquote, says the thread starter, a clue without. The too long didn't read version first off is you should be allowed to assign envoys to foreign civs, not just city states. And I know we have talked about this and some possible application of this on the show before. But a clue without says the main idea is that you can assign envoys to both city states and other civilizations. City-states. Envoys assigned to city-states work exactly the same way they do now. You can also still get additional envoys with the city-state by completing its quest. If you have the most envoys, you also get a suzerain bonus with that city-state. Okay. Foreign civilizations. Envoys assigned to foreign civs would do the following. First, envoys would improve relations with that civ, i.e. they are a positive diplomatic modifier, perhaps subject to a cap. Oh yes, definitely subject to a cap. Second, after certain thresholds are reached, envoys would improve your alliance level with that civ instead of are in addition to earning alliance points. And third, again, after certain thresholds are reached, envoys would improve your visibility with that civ. You would also get bonus envoys with foreign civs when you declare a joint war with them or succeed in an emergency together or maybe giving them a huge chunk of gold, which might be called tribute or later state aid. There would also be new diplomatic uh, policy cards with which envoys placed with foreign civilizations. For example, there might be a card which improves your spy's chances of success based on how many envoys you have in a civ. I'm all fine for this improving relations with that civ. Again, with the cap, improving your alliance level with that civ. Uh, I, I, with the alliance system right now where it's, okay, we have a research alliance. Okay, in order to get to level two, a certain amount of time needs to pass as measured in turns in order to get to level two, because we're still, first, not at war with each other, and second of all, we've managed not to piss off each other or one side piss off the other side to then say, let's go ahead and renew that. So I'm not certain I want to tie an alliance level to envoys. As for improving visibility with that civilization, I kind of feel... Improving that visibility, I'm thinking, okay, so you've got visibility on cities, you've got visibility on going inside the city, you've got visibility on troop movements, but isn't that what spies are for, or can be for? I would think an envoy would work a little more overtly and improve relations. Didn't Civ Five have a feature where you could send a spy to another Civ and then you could, like... As a diplomat, yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like this is just kind of the same thing as that. And in that sense, I think I would kind of just rather, yeah, see that be an alternate function of spies. I mean, I guess it's a little bit different because in Civ Six, you actually have to build your spies as opposed to being given them for free. And you're kind of just given envoys for free. The one thing that I would worry about this is because you get envoys for free, it might open up the possibility of just being able to have games of perpetual peace because everybody's just sending all their envoys to other civs and they all have all these bonus modifiers and diplomatic modifiers and things like that. There would, just wouldn't be any conflict. 
Can you really say you get Envoys for free, though? I mean, some policies give you Envoys sooner, that kind of thing. So it's a choice of whether you want to spend the policy on that or versus some other thing that would improve another mechanic. Well, yeah, but the, the difference, again, comparing it to spies is you actually have to build a spy in a city, right? The Envoy points are just automatically generated. You just get more of those points per turn depending yeah, on like, what government you have. It's something that you don't have to actively invest in in order to acquire, right? It just kind of happens passively in the background. Yes, you're automatically getting – you got at least one Envoy point per turn, and then you can improve that based on your tier governments. You go to political philosophy, say you adopt classical republic, and you're now say, oh, I'm going to run that uh, modifier, that uh, diplomacy card that gives me plus two a turn. Sorry, I sh- so, okay, I've got an Envoy. Do I send it to a city-state? Do I send it to a foreign civilization? A city-state is not like a foreign civilization in the sense that – so when I heard you talk about Envoys for Free Jason, I was thinking of the, hey, guess what? I'm the first to meet my neighbor. I get a free Envoy with the foreign civilization. I would see it being that you wouldn't be able to do that, number one, and that number two, if you did send an Envoy to a foreign civilization rather than saying with a city-state, okay, oh. I just met a cultural city-state, I'm the first one there, I instantly get plus two culture a turn. Whereas with a foreign civilization, I send the envoy, I have to choose that, I don't automatically earn that because I was the first to meet by circumstance, I've made the choice to send it to a foreign civilization rather than a city-state, I'm not going to get an immediate benefit, it has something like a trade network where after an envoy is still there... Because then this also gets into question, can you reassign envoys or not? And you can't do that with city-states. So I guess, as I'm, I'm backing up a little bit on my, my own statement, do we want it to be that once you've sent an envoy to a foreign civilization, that envoy can't be moved? I mean, I, I would think that would be the case. Okay, so then once you've sent that there, since it can't be moved, then you're willing to invest the time in order for that diplomatic modifier, say, after... X number of turns, uh, let's say that it's 10 turns, for example, you gain a plus one modifier. And if you keep that there for, say, another 20 turns, okay, that envoy is now, after 30 turns, at plus three, and there's your cap. Do you still want to continue to improve your relations with that? Well, you can send another envoy when you generate that, but it also has that time that, that needs to pass, just like a trade route. I mean, yes, I know with the trade route, you're automatically getting that benefit, but I guess it's similar to trading post, for example. Nope, the trade post is only going to be there once the trade road is complete. So in this case, with a foreign civilization, your envoy will give you an improved relations, but they don't just improve relations because they show up that turn and say, hey, I'm awesome. <laughs> the envoy is still there. The civilization that it came from and the civilization that it is currently placed in have managed not to go to war with each other during this time. So therefore, there's a positive diplomatic modifier for the time he or she has spent in that civilization's lands. Well, I like the idea in general of having more things that you can actively and assertively do to improve relationships with the AI civs. I just I'm not sure if this is the way to do it. The issue that I'm seeing is, all right, imagine you're playing a game at the highest difficulty levels, you know, immortal or, or deity or whatever, right? You're on a continent with another civ and that civ goes and steamrolls over all the city states by 20 turns into the game because that's what all the AI civs do in Civ 6 right now. So you have literally nothing to do with any of your envoys, which you are passively automatically generating in the background, pretty much regardless of what you do. You have nothing to do with them except send them to that other civ that you're on the continent with i mean i guess you could just not send them and save them up for later 
but then they're not doing anything for you. So you might as well send them to that sieve that you're stuck on the continent for. Well, this is a unilateral decision that you're making that is improving diplomatic relations with that sieve, whether that sieve wants improved diplomatic relations or not. So you end up with a situation where you've got one player that's basically forcing another player who you know might be a warmonger sieve into this situation where they have this like peaceful alliance relationship that they didn't want or ask for or approve of simply because that other player had nothing to do with their envoys that they're just being given essentially like i said for free i think within the user interface you would have to know for example your congo jason rome is an ai the roman ai recognizes that you've sent an envoy and after a certain amount of turns that's going to give a positive diplomatic relation and they should be notified of that just like for example you can see a trade route coming to you Right? Because Rome AI could go and send you a trade route. And you think, oh, no, 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 I don't want you getting that benefit. I don't want you constructing that road to my capital. I know it's going to take time in order for that road to complete. Just like I know it's going to take time in order for the AI to register this as a diplomatic bonus. I don't like this. So I'm going to go and I'm going to stop you from doing that. And or probably and the amount that you would get that plus one could be a relative drop in the bucket to something that's more active, either a choice you made or you didn't make in terms of the relations. So it would only be an edge case where that one particular envoy can make the difference between a friendly and a neutral or even a negative state. Well, right. But I'm not talking about one envoy. I'm talking about basically being in situations where you're dumping all of your envoys into a foreign sieve. According to this proposal, there's nothing that they can do about that. So I guess what I'm getting at is maybe what we need to add to this proposal is something where civilizations that don't want your envoys have a way to like expel them or something like that. Maybe you have a system where placing the envoy in another sieve actually gives that sieve some tangible benefit. Like maybe they get more reciprocal gold or something like that from trade routes that they send to you. It's actually encouraging them to have peaceful relations with you, but it's not necessarily forcing you into that. But then they then have the option to expel those envoys, but then they lose whatever benefit that envoy was providing them. Perhaps that can be addressed uh, twofold. One, the more passive thing is where a clue without has suggested a cap on the number of envoys that you could send. And so I'd say, yes, absolutely a cap for that, both in terms of the number of envoys and the amount of positive influence they'd be able to exert, regardless of how many turns have passed. But you could also tie it to, oh, you want to send an envoy to my civilization. That's fantastic. You've earned it. Open borders, please. And you're only going to agree to open borders if there has already been a demonstration, either that you are friendly and or I don't think that you are a particular threat. And you can say, okay, go ahead. And then if you decide, man, they've sent the three envoys, the maximum three envoys they could have here. They've managed to improve relations with me. Yes, I also like the idea that you're getting something out of it as well, which ties into something that I said before with trade routes in Civilization Six. that the person receiving it should receive a benefit other than just a road to them. But at the same time, oh, it's time to renew open borders. Yeah, no, I'm not going to renew open borders because I know you have all of these envoys here and I'm not going to put up with it anymore. I don't like you as much anymore. Go away. You sent too many envoys. Get out. Get off my lawn. Especially since in the case of civilizations, your relationships over the course of the game change. You don't want a situation where a sieve forward settles you or attacks your ally or something like that. And you can't do anything about it because you've pumped so many irrevocable envoys 
into them that declaring war on them provides you with some like massive penalty or something like that or a betrayal because all these envoys have created an alliance. Those are the things that I worry about. These aren't necessarily deal breakers. Right. They're just concerns that I have with the pitch that's up here. So hopefully between what has been suggested by Clue Without and what we've started to flesh out here, at least starts to address those concerns. Because indeed, they need to be meaningful choices, but they also need to be active ones, not just passive ones. Particularly when that passive one is applying a modifier to somebody else. It's not just about how you're playing, you're getting something passive, but you're getting something that you're actively doing is also having a passive effect on the other player. And A, they need to be notified of what that effect is, and there needs to be reasonable and meaningful, timely opportunities in order to prevent that from snowballing. Right. He also suggests reassign envoys. You would now be able to reassign envoys periodically. First, each time you change governments, and second, after paying a hefty sum of gold to lock envoys. You'd also have returned to any envoys you placed with a sieve that you are now at war with, probably minus a random number of envoys. I'm thinking right now, no, your choice was to send that envoy somewhere. You got that benefit out of that for that particular point in time. If a peaceful state returns that, I mean, your envoys are still there, but during war, they're having absolutely no effect whatsoever. And if peaceful relations resume, then your envoys can go back to doing that in a foreign civilization, just like it can with the city-state. Returning envoys that you've already placed, it, to me, it just it's taking away the choice. And suddenly, it could also be, you know what? I just sent a whole bunch of envoys to that foreign civilization or to that city-state. <laughs> oh, that was a mistake. I just found a better one. I declare war. I now get all of my envoys returned. And guess what? I've instantly got six, eight, ten in the city-state that I just found. Which, if you really like, is not next to the people you just attacked. Exactly. Yeah, another potential kind of exploit with that would be, like you said, you declare war on them, you get all your envoys back, and then maybe you pump them into a neighboring sieve in order to get that sieve to joint war. You know, and maybe that was your plan all along, was to just get this large lump sum that you could dump into somebody in order to manipulate them into doing something. And I feel like stuff like that might be a little exploity. Well, yeah, especially suggest you know, get bonus envoys with foreign sieves when you declare a joint war with them. So yeah. I dump in envoys to get more envoys. <laughs> I would almost feel like if you put envoys in a city-state or a foreign sieve and then you declared war on that sieve, that those envoys would have to probably just be lost, or some of them at least would have to be lost. So there would have to be some penalty to you for doing that. Yeah. All right. Part three. City Works. And I read that title and I think, what is this civilization called power? The too-long-didn't-read version of this, there should be more projects you can run, like the atomic and nuclear bomb projects. Whoa, say what? Public works. The idea is that certain techs and civics would unlock new projects called public works. These projects would be similar to atomic and nuclear bomb projects, allowing yourself to build some new type of building or unit, or grant a permanent improvement to your civilization. Example of public works. Below are suggestions. They're all work in progress. Most I haven't worked out what civics would unlock each project. I mean, in and of itself, the idea of public works... I'm reading that, and I'm saying, okay, the devil is in the details now. Yeah, uh, some of these look promising. I mean, I definitely like to see railroads return to the game in some form. I think that's one of, if not the most significant technological advancement that's absent from Civ Six, very conspicuously absent from Civ Six. You're not going to put this number of things in and have it instantly be balanced, but at least conceptually, they're, they're workable, some of them. It reminds me of kind of like a hybrid of National Wonders and the uh, the projects in Civ Five, like yeah. the UN projects, the World Fair and, and stuff like that. 
It's on a domestic scale. Yeah. I, actually, for the railway infrastructure, need three cities of population X need one coal. So then once again, okay, one of the coal resources, this is what they're being used for, for railway infrastructure. But rather than it being your traditional sieve, oh, your land units increase their speed, all harbors gain plus one adjacency bonus, gain X additional trade routes. You might be a little frowny face if you're playing a mostly land-based game and you're like, well, I, 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 I don't have harbors, um, but... <laughs> <laughs> or hardly any. You could tie it to something gains a plus one adjacency bonus. The thing that really got my attention with that one again was, oh, you're not suggesting that it's improving the speed on the road, which is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just, okay, what else is it going to be? And also, when you say railway infrastructure, is the game doing this? Like, over time, the game is just actively going to take each one of your roads, for example, bet- say between your cities, and by the end of X number of turns, it has completed X number of hexes. It's not going to be that, okay, we've got builders, and now we've got to go and do something with them, right? It is just going to be automated, just like the road construction would be based on trade routes being built. Uh, are we going to get into military engineer stuff again? Uh, actually have them do something. I do want to say that I really do like the idea of separating railroads from regular roads and railroads not just being an upgrade to roads. I would really like for those to be mechanically different pieces of infrastructure. So I like that this proposal actually is not that it just increases the movement speed of roads. You could have a system where in order to build the thing, you need to have access to coal. And then in order to use it for certain things, maybe you need to have additional sources of coal. Maybe you can only transport one unit on the rail network for each coal that you have, right? So if you have five total coal, you can move five units each turn. Ah. And then similarly, I think airlifts then should be the same way, but they should require oil to fuel the airplanes or whatever. Props to a Clue Without for making reference to needing one coal for the railway infrastructure to get us started on this path, I think, again, of tying back into what he was talking about in an earlier suggestion about having many multiple or many multiple sources of a particular strategic resource as you can get. Yeah. National health. Need three cities of population X, each with sewers. All cities with sewers get plus percentage growth, additional growth for each neighborhood in a city, plus one amenity for each city. And this may be unlock at sanitation or urbanization. I like that first off that you've got the tie for an additional amenity because it's, hey, you get percentage growth, but uh, there's no amenity to go with that. So uh, also you get the additional growth, but um, there's no houses to go along with that. So tying it into when it becomes available, say urbanization, when you can have neighborhoods, okay, there's the additional uh, housing that would then spill into the national health that's giving you increased growth. Okay, okay. Telecommunications network, need two airports. All commercial hubs and campuses receive plus one adjacency bonus. Airports produce plus X culture and tourism. The additional plus X culture and tourism, maybe not plus X, maybe a percentage base, but commercial hubs and campuses receive plus one adjacency bonus. When the fact that you need two airports, that is a drop in a bucket. I'm not really certain we need to throw that in there, but I like the additional culture and tourism because after all, it's moving people throughout your empire. I'm also not entirely clear how, why you thematically you would need airports for telecom. I would think that would be more like needing broadcast towers. Yeah. Satellite communications, complete telecommunications network. You or another civ need to have completed the Earth satellite project. Plus one movement to all units within your borders can see the entire map. Well, the plus one moon of the tall units within your borders, we currently have a military policy card that will give you that. As for seeing the entire map, well, it's not visibility on the entire map. You get shared visibility at a military alliance with that one other civilization. 
So, I mean, there's something to work with here, although I don't know about plus one movement stall units within your borders, unless you're getting rid of that policy card. I mean, you could say, well, you don't have to run that policy card, Dan. You can run something else now. Well, that's true. It just seems a little underwhelming, given the threshold and how late it comes. So, again, it's not... Forget about satellite communications. It's just, I'm sorry, what are we getting out of it for what we have to put into it? Diplomatic standing. Must have not been at war for 25 turns. Must be suzerain of three city-states. When completed, you receive plus X envoys and some gold. Spies are plus one level for X turns. Note, like other projects, you can only run this once. Man, oh man, not having been at war for 25 turns. That's not completely dependent on your actions, let alone being the suzerain of three city-states. And then you receive plus X envoys. In part, because you have to be suzerain of three city-states, you have to have a sufficient number of envoys in there. So I get more envoys because I have more envoys. We heard you like envoys to hear some more envoys. Compounding interest. Conservation initiative. Must have two national parks. Well, hey, good luck with that. (laughs) Yeah. One, much less two. Uh, you get X additional error score and all cities receive plus loyalty for X turn. Your civilization no longer gets amenities from ivory or furs and cannot buy or sell ivory or furs. I'd add whales to that list too. And maybe turtles. Yeah. Human rights initiative. Must own three universities. You get X additional error score and all cities receive plus loyalty for X turns. Sounding familiar? Your civilization no longer gets amenities from diamonds or amber and cannot buy or sell diamonds or amber. Ah, oh, now blood diamonds, I see. Why not amber? They don't want a Jurassic Park happening? I'm guessing there's blood amber is a thing, too, maybe, somewhere. I've never heard of it, but I don't know, maybe. Human rights definitely for the blood diamond. I don't know about the amber part, though, yeah. Yeah. It may have just been an attempt to try to balance it with the conservation initiative. Right. Two resources. But I would think maybe things more like sugar and cotton. How they were harvested, yeah. Slave labor. Yeah. Environmental initiative. Must have three archaeology museums. Get X additional error score and all cities receive loyalty for X turns. Your civilization no longer sells oil, coal, or nuclear, but you can still otherwise use these resources. <laughs> yeah, what? I, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> you can't have your cake and eat it too. Again, I just want to point out that the original poster says these are all work in progress ideas. So I understand that, but I I guess it's just in order to present it as a work in progress. It still sounds kind of funny. We're missing something fundamental here. That particular one is not a work in progress. That just needs work. There's also just a lot of overlap between that and the conservation initiative. Kind of feel like at this point, they might as well just be the same thing. I guess you could keep the things for research purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Science bonus. Okay, here we go. Eliminate tariffs. Must have some number of gold per turn. You receive two additional trade routes. All international trade routes to or from your cities gives both parties plus gold. The part about the international trade giving the other party, like you send a trade route to somebody else and they get gold, but otherwise this is getting gold for getting gold. Well, not necessarily, because it might be one of those things where it encourages you to send your trade routes out internationally as opposed to using them domestically for production or whatever. Although at this point in the yeah, game... you have to have gold per turn at a sufficient amount oh, to do well, it. Oh, well, yeah, that's, which that's is true. odd. I would say maybe it should just be... The requirement should just be that you have trade routes coming into your civilization or trade routes going out of your civilization. I think coming into your civilization, even though it doesn't have a lot of agency, like it doesn't make sense to 
eliminate tariffs if you don't have any goods coming into your empire. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just saying the going out of your civilization because that does allow you to have agency in whether or not you can ever use this. But yeah, like yeah, I guess realistically, right. could, it, it should require you can model that you it have, that way. It's fine. Yeah, realistically, sure. it should require that you have trade routes coming into your civilization from other civilizations. Also, realistically, it should require that you have imposed those tariffs to begin with. Uh, yeah, true. So if you never impose the tariffs because you always had open trade to begin with, then you don't ever need to eliminate them. So Yeah. Well, in that case, why not just give the bonus or give some alternative bonus for having tariffs and then make people decide which they want? Yeah. Because otherwise, you're just getting some stuff. There's no choice to be made, and you might as well just decide how much you want to get from these trade routes. Devolution. <laughs> I love this name. Must have tier three government. <laughs> I, I just love that sentence. Uh, you... <laughs> You receive additional governor titles and time to establish governors reduced by one turn. Your capital's loyalty bonus is reduced. Cannot run project if you already run centralized power or nationalization. Uh, Call the devolution. You're going to receive additional governor titles and time to establish governors reduced in one turn. But your capital's loyalty bonus is reduced. But you're sending out more governor titles. If that's the devolution, what's the evolution? I feel like you just get more governor titles and most of this other stuff isn't going to matter. I guess it's trying to reflect that those governors are people who have been helping you out the capital and keeping its loyalty high. Therefore, that's why you're sending them to a new city to make a new city better. But now you don't have that help at home. So your citizens at home are getting restless. Except that in reality, I mean, how often are you getting opposing loyalty pressure in your capital? Yeah, not very often. So it's like it's kind of, it feels like it's kind of moot. I guess if your capital wouldn't be projecting that loyalty out to other cities, which actually could be significant. But I, I don't think this is intended for, oh, your capital now is at risk of flipping. I think it's more that your capital isn't generating the pressure on the other cities that are expansion cities, unless you have the governors in them. Even then, it's probably not going to matter. In yeah, those cases. Un- unlikely. So to be clear, this is a devolution as part of this trio of devolution, centralized power, nationalization, where you can only run one of them. The second one, rather, centralized power, again, tier three government. Your capital receives plus production per city with 10 population and additional growth. Cities with pop less than 10 receive minus one amenity. Yeah. Like I understand centralizing power, your capital receiving additional production. And I guess you're set, the idea with the population of 10 or more is that your other cities have sufficient production to be able to send back to the capital for it to be meaningful. So your other cities are sending production to the city as long as it's plus 10. I mean, I, I get you're trying to reward not just having like a bunch of infinite city sprawl here, but the production you're going to get with the cities that already have 10 population probably already have decent production to begin with. No, you're getting a stronger capital as a result of having those cities. So if you had 10 cities of pop 10, then you could get 10 or 20 straight up hammers in your capital. Well, you really have to obviously look at the choice of how many cities you have that are 10 pop. Yeah, and if you're taking cities, they're all going to be amenity starved because they're probably not going to be 10 pop initially. So. The weird thing about this, though, is that it seems it's intended to be kind of like a bonus for tall empires. but it still works even better with a wide empire because the more cities of pop 10 you have, better your capital is going to be. But then like thematically and realistically, it should be harder to centralize power with more very large cities, I would think. Well, it would be from an amenities perspective. That would get on really quickly. If you kept chaining 10 pop plus cities, you'd really have to invest to maintain that. 
Well, the amenities, according to this, are is only penalized for cities with less than 10 pop. Yeah, but you still have to have all of that population. Yeah. That's going to put pressure on your amenities. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you will have to invest to make that happen. And then lastly of the suggestion of these public works, nationalization. Again, tier three government. All cities with 10 or greater population receive a production uh, boost and science and minus one amenity. Depends on what the percentage is. That's true. There is always going to be some bonus percentage that is absolutely worth minus one amenity. And just yeah. as an extreme example, if it doubled your production in science, I think mm. everyone would run this without exception. That. One amenity, no problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think we could make that one work if we're getting that kind of bonus. So I guess it just depends how much. Hmm. Yeah, even a 50% bonus would probably still be worth that. Just when you start getting below that, if you went down to 25, I don't know if that would be enough of a bonus. Well, and this one just looks like it's just flat out better than centralized power because centralized power requires that you have all of these cities with 10 or more pop as well. So you might as well use the nationalization to have a bonus in all of those cities as opposed to just getting bonuses in one. Yeah, because this is production and science and the other one is just plus production. Unless you want to do like plus four production in your capital for every city with 10 pop on centralized power or something. Something stupid that gives you like 200 hammers a turn. Right. Or alternatively, nationalization just be a really small bonus that's kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah, then you wouldn't run it. Right. So you you uh, could tune these so that they're roughly equal in terms of attractiveness. I'm just not sure. Like these aren't appealing to me. Yeah, same here. I'm, I'm just not wowed by them. There is also the After Rise and Fall suggestion series, part four on governments and part five, buffs to sieves, vassals, and other things. But we will cover them on a next episode. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call Call in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Hydration break because of how hot it is. Well, that's only down here in Texas right now. Uh, it's not no, that no. in Canada. No, no. We've got 90s. It's certainly not just Texas, Mackie. No. I don't think you would well, find yeah, any more I know, pleasant here. I mean, here in southern Ontario right now, we forecast for six days plus of humidex that feels like 110 degrees Fahrenheit plus, and even without the humidex, 100 degrees Fahrenheit plus. So we actually have Texas to thank for it, apparently, according to the meteorologists. This is where it came from, Mackie. Hmm. I love that we're just exchanging some hot air for all the cold air you send during the winter. 
Well, as usual, it's hot and wet where I come from. Here in Las Vegas, we just get a couple drops of rain on the roads, and because it happens so infrequently, all the oil on the roads gets slick, and everybody is just slipping and sliding all over it's the place. It's a skating rink. Yeah, it, you wouldn't even need ice. It's just, like I said, like the two weeks of the year that we get rain, it's a nightmare. Now, we do tend to have slight differences in uh, height, and that can cause water to pull in certain areas. And so when we get a lot of heavy rain, sometimes the roads get flooded, which is obnoxious. We get a lot of flash flooding in Vegas because the city's built at the bottom of a valley. You get a new free lake. Yeah, that's what happens in some of the areas in Florida where it pulls. And you just don't want to drive through that unless you have like a really like those giant tires that people put on their pickups or whatever. It happens every year here, but it's still infrequent enough that people still think they can drive through it. And then they get stuck. <laughs> so it's not just sitting water. It's also pushing your car as you're trying to drive through it. Yeah, but there too, it makes a big difference if the water is just on your tires versus is putting pressure across the entire body of the car. Uh, <laughs> it depends where you're getting pushed too. Well, it's almost always perpendicular to the direction you're traveling. Well, yeah, but like if you get pushed okay, into okay. deeper water, you could get dead. If you get pushed just sideways into more of the same, then it's inconvenient and you're stuck, but you're probably going to make it. Yeah, guys, guys, <laughs> this is Polycast, not Weather Chat. Right, right. <laughs> now, that what I've learned about Nevada today is that water is greater than intellect there. <laughs> and there's not much water <laughs> so that's saying a lot and my summary of florida is how can it be obnoxious to you today <laughs> well at least i didn't get power knocked out so that's nice <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's probably colder here than there because we got all the cloud cover and rain sure actually you have cloud cover today <laughs> anyway this has been polycats episode 311 I'm as usual, I'm Maka and joined by Dan Q. I'm criminally underrated. Mega Bears fan. This has been a public service announcement, courtesy of Polycast. <laughs> the me and team. Maybe the military could also be hot and wet. <laughs> and Cedric. Just enough time to levy, yes, normal age. <laughs> I did have a hidden agenda, although it's not so hidden anymore. Oh, no. That's, you know, Dan, that's your default agenda that's visible to everyone. <laughs> so if I was a governor in the game, that would be your default ability. <laughs> Generates top 10 lip. Yeah. <laughs> your turn rolls over. Here are the top 10 things you can do to improve your empire. Fuck off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tried with the segue, but Mackie didn't pick up on it. I guess, you know, it just yeah, wasn't good enough. Mackie actually has to get Molasses' computer to load the window first. Oh. Okay. Yeah, I've been doing that while you guys have been talking. It's like, yeah, okay, any day now, any day now. <laughs> it's like, this other window is not loading. <laughs> Just find a subject for like another minute or two. <laughs> I would like to say that I feel Polycast has reached a certain status on YouTube that during our live stream, we received a spam message for the first time. This validates our existence. Thank you, Internet. <sighs> Popular We're legit now. Yeah, take the bad with the good, and we can wear it as a badge of honor. Has the thread loaded for you, Mackie? 
No, I have the tab, but it's not letting my thing below where it should show us the fanatics, but I'm just going to have to try typing it in and see if that works. It was slow for me. I actually did. Uh, I have pulled up the threads, though, and I like clicked on all of them just in case it's on CFC's side and something goes pear-shaped more so than it has. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've got the opening poster. I can just copy and paste it into Skype for you, Mackie, if it's still not loading for you. Yeah, it's true. Wait, wait, we're getting somewhere. Mackie's like, oh gosh, Dan, don't send me more messages. Webpage, please load already. <laughs> <laughs> I will invade Dan's world and backstab. This betrayal surprises no one. <laughs> betrayal? Question mark? <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall making any promises. <laughs> <laughs> Mackie's secretly plotting the downfall of us all. I think that's really what's going on. <laughs> I haven't absconded to get more coffee or anything. Oh, you went and got cookies and dead. I, I see what you did with your word no, choice. Oh, I well. wish. Mm, yeah. Gluten-free cookies. I think what Mackie would appreciate is a t-shirt that says, my only weapon is sass. You don't have a uh, yes. bag of holding? You really need to get a bag <laughs> of holding. Do they sell those? Probably. <laughs> Record date June 30th, 2018. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 clips. Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.